when my clients and I are trying to figure out what goods and services to apply under, one of the first things I always do is I think of their biggest competitor. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the second season. On this episode, we're going to talk about the freelancing world and its relationship with intellectual property. Let's welcome our guest. Well, thank you for having me. My name is Chris Brown. Uh, I was born here in America, so I'm an American, and I'm 38 years old, and I am currently a lawyer with my own law firm. Tell us about your career path towards becoming a lawyer. Yeah. So I, I grew up playing music and I ended up going to a school in Nashville, Tennessee called Belmont University. And I majored in music business uh, with an emphasis in music production. And then I went to New York City for a while and worked at a recording studio. And it was only like six months after I graduated undergrad and was working at the studio that I decided to go to law school. And I specifically wanted to study copyright law because at the time, this was in the mid 2000s and the music industry was just kind of in a messy stage. And a lot of it revolved around copyright issues. And so that That's what prompted me to go to law school in the first place. Uh, when I got to law school, um, I, I came home to Kansas City and went to the University of Missouri in Kansas City, uh, which is a really good regional law school. Not very well known across the country, probably, but a great school here. Uh, came back here when I was in school. I studied a lot about entrepreneurship in addition to intellectual property issues. And that led me into becoming just a uh, you know traditional corporate lawyer at a law firm. Uh, and so I did that for about three years after graduation. Uh, and then about seven years ago uh, now, I, I created my own law firm. At the time, it was called Venture Legal. Uh, now it's called Pixel Law. And uh, I, I do uh, transactional work for startups, freelancers, and small businesses uh, with a pretty big focus on you know fixed fees and just making it as simple as possible for those businesses. So I do a lot of intellectual property work today, but I also just do a lot of general business work for my clients. How did you describe your law firm? Because um, the reason why the, we met is because we were both in Clubhouse and I was listening to your great talk uh, in one of the rooms uh, and you were talking about all the great things that you do in your own practice. So can you share with us why your law firm is different yeah. from other law firms? Yeah, Um You know, when I when I started my law firm, to be honest, it was kind of a side project. I, I was starting another business at the time that I uh, sold a couple years ago. Uh, but because of that, it, I just set it up on the side, made a basic website, had some fixed fee pricing, and, and just kind of did that to make some money while I was starting this other business. And a funny thing happened. Uh, that model really worked well, and my clients loved it. So I was, I was charging fixed fees. I even put pricing on my website. And for the most part, the pricing on my website is pretty accurate. I mean, sometimes a client will have an issue and I have to create a custom package, but I don't like billing hourly. So I just use fixed fees about 80 or 90% of the time. Uh, and that's not extremely unique. There are other firms doing it. Uh, but I do think that I'm a little bit more transparent in that regard. Uh, I think one of the things that makes my firm very unique is that I am extremely hyper-focused and I end up turning down a lot of work that comes my way. So if it's not in the business realm for a small business, uh, you know, startup, freelancer or whatever, then I turn that work away because I want to have a hyper focus on this on this niche. So I do day-to-day -day transactions for the smallest of companies. Uh, and then more recently, one thing that certainly sets me apart is uh, I'm pretty much entirely virtual at this point. Uh, in fact, when COVID hit, uh, I was already well prepared to be virtual. Everything I did was already in the cloud. I didn't do a lot of video conferencing before COVID, but now I do video all the time on Zoom and you know other places. Uh, but so in the last year, I've decided to rebrand 
um, changing my name to Pixel Law. So I'm focusing on the smallest of companies and I'm doing so virtually. And in connection to that, I'm actually expanding my practice to Colorado and moving to the Boulder area uh, in June. So the idea is that I'll have clients in Missouri and Kansas, where I've always worked, as well as Colorado once I get licensed there uh, and doing so virtually. Why did you change your name, um, the company name? Is there a reason behind this story? To be honest, what happened was I, my domain is venture, my domain was venturelegalkc.com, KC standing for Kansas City, where my practice is. And since I was moving and expanding the practice to Colorado, I didn't want to keep that domain. I couldn't get venturelegal.com because some woman owns it and I couldn't get it from her. Uh, and so I figured, you know what, if there's ever a time to change my name, it's now. Uh, there was also a lot of other law firms using some form of venture. Uh, and, and you'll know this from a trademark perspective, you know, it's best mm -hmm. to have a more unique name. Uh, so I, I spent some time and my wife and I actually talked a lot about this and she's been helpful in terms of, you know, branding elements and things. And so uh, I was saying I wanted a more simple name that aligns with what I do. And I really love, you know, Stripe's name because Stripe, you know, inherently doesn't have anything to do with payments. But then when you think about Stripe, you realize that it's, you know, a Stripe on the back of a card is how they collect payments. You know, they, they do it online, not really with the Stripe, but you know, it's a, it's a funny name. And so she, my wife actually came up with Pixel, you know, a Pixel is a tiny element on a, on a computer screen. And I represent mm -hmm. the smallest of companies and a Pixel is a digital asset and I'm going to be a virtual lawyer. So it all just kind of tied in well, and I could get the name pixellaw.com and change. <laughs> and it was just a few weeks ago, actually, that I rolled out the new website and the new brand name. Oh, wow. That's great. That's a kudos to your wife that yes. came up with that <laughs> great name because it's yeah. a, it's something that it's so good that we when we see it, like why no one thought about it before? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, not only that, but why do so many firms use their name as their law firm? I mean, that's the trick. Oh, yeah. It, you know, brown, brown, brown and brown or whatever. Oh, and, good Lord. Uh, yeah. They, they do that in my country, too. It's like last name, yeah. last name. And you're like, hey, and but there's there's no life into it. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, it's a great opportunity opportunity to convey a message about your law firm through your name. And if your name is just a series of, uh, of names, like uh, human names, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. you're losing an opportunity. Now, I know some states, I think Texas, maybe I can't remember where some states actually ban um, trade names. You have to have your name and the law firm name somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there are some there's some changes to that. And states are becoming more and more relaxed on that front. But I, I think more and more law firms should adopt trade names like I have. Um, well, actually, no, they should all just keep their boring names because it's helpful to me. <laughs> Uh, so then you, uh, you come out like unique. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but seriously, I, I really think more firms should do it. And I'm seeing it more and more, um, especially among younger lawyers who are just starting out their career because they don't see a reason to use their name in the title. You know, they're coming up with different and, and more unique yeah, names. Yeah, but I think it comes probably from the idea that, you know, that um, the lawyers usually it's, it's a family business uh, yeah. uh, here here in the U.S. and also back in my country, Dominican Republic, that usually if the father is a lawyer, then the, the children are expected to be lawyers or someone mm. in the lowest spectrum. So I think it came from that. But now since people are usually following their own path, trying to find the things that they love themselves, it is, it's not so common that you see like this long traditions of people doing the same business uh, in the family line. So right. it's something that it's, 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 it's interesting to see how things are changing but I love your name Pixel <laughs> <laughs> and you. it's 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 very it, it really caught my attention because it's something that is wow yeah and, and it tells you what you do as well it's yeah. it's a it's a very good name for that well, so you. you're welcome <laughs> So speaking of the things that you do differently apart from your name you also have this project that is called Contract Canvas can you tell us what that is 
Sure. Um, so Contract Canvas was kind of created by an uh, just an accident. Uh, I was trying to automate some of my processes in my law firm. And so I was meeting with a friend of mine who's a developer. And uh, in the process, we realized, wow, what, what if we just skipped over me and created the automation and released it straight to the freelancers? Um, so we applied for a WeWork Creator Award um, and actually got selected. And we honestly weren't really thinking we would get selected. This was just an idea. And they flew us down to Austin, Texas and gave us $18,000 in grant funding to build it. But, but the funny thing is at the time, we didn't even have a, I don't even think we had a business form, but I know we didn't have a bank account because they sent me the forms and said, where do we wire the money? And I was like, oh no, we got to get a bank account. Um, so we just kind of quickly put this thing together. And then we actually ended up becoming a finalist in another year's round of creator awards. Um, but there was all this traction. So what we did was we built this platform and it's called Contract Canvas. It's it's designed for creative professionals. So website designers, copywriters, marketing people, logo designers, and so on. Um, you can go to the website, contractcanvas.com, create an account, answer some basic questions. It's a lot like LegalZoom, Rocket Lawyer, you know, a lot of those other platforms out there. What really sets us apart, though, is that when when the contract gets created based on the input you provide, we create it in a what I call a human format. So it's designed for humans, not lawyers. It has icons in plain English. Uh, it's really easy to kind of understand that human version of the contract. And that's actually what you and your client sign uh, digitally through our platform. And then underneath the signatures is the full legal agreement. So, you know, if a dispute does arise or if you need to, you know, get clarity around a deal point, you, you have a legal agreement there. You could take it to court. You can use it to negotiate settlements or whatever. But for the most part, the parties can just simply rely on the human summary that just simply says, here's what the freelancer is doing. Here's what the client's going to pay. Here's how the clients terminate the agreement. And that's kind of it. So we have a lot of uh, ideas on how we can expand this and do different types of agreements, possibly expand out beyond creative professionals. But for right now, um, you know, kind of like my law firm, we're trying to be hyper niche with the focus of what Contract Canvas does. Have you found that it has been helpful for your clients? Have you heard any feedback from them? Um, it's quite a unique approach to have this tool for everyone who who fits the freelancer uh, spectrum. Um, so have you have any comments regarding it or have you had to change something before um, um, that you used to have and then you change it to something else? That's a good question. So first of all, yeah, the, our users absolutely love it. Um, creative people in general don't like dealing with contracts uh, and a lot of them don't even like dealing with lawyers. Um, <laughs> and so to be very clear, Contract Canvas is completely separate from my law firm, Pixel Law. They're two completely different businesses. Um, but yeah, so the the client base, they, they love it. Um, in terms of what have we changed? I mean, yeah, there is a lot. Developing this was a lot more work than I, than I think I you know, anticipated it being. Um, we ran through a lot of tests with our users. And I, I guess one of the things that really, I don't know if I'd say it surprised me, but I wasn't fully prepared for it was just the level of inexperience, I guess, that a lot of the users have. So like it would say, do you want to include indemnification provisions? Well, you know, when I step back and think about it, nobody other than lawyers know what indemnification means. Right? <laughs> and there's yes, no true. reason for true. them to really know it anyway. So what we did was we had to create FAQs and examples and, and all kinds of things to help them navigate through the, the wizard when they're creating their contracts. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that we can't draft for our users is their services, because I don't know what you're building. I don't know how many pages of the website you're going to build or whatever. It's so customizable. And so that was kind of a sticking point. People would get to that part of the wizard and be like, hmm, what do I put here? So then what we did was we created a whole bunch of sample uh, scopes of work that they can literally copy and paste. So like there's a web development uh, sample scope of work. There's a logo design, you know, that talks about different design processes and things. So they can copy and paste it and then edit it, you know, however they need. 
So it was certainly a learning experience watching them use it, watching them break it and watching them try to do things with the platform that I never would have thought they would have tried to do. And then going back to the drawing board and trying to fix the problem. So, so it was definitely a fun experiment. Um, so now we're at a stage where we're just trying to get users and get more user feedback is kind of where we are right now. Oh yeah, sounds um, sounds like a great tool, and it's something that it is always needed, especially for for those who are in the freelancing world. They usually are in the less well, let's say more vulnerable um, spectrum because they are the one usually always trying to secure a job, and a lot of freelancers they will give away things that they don't understand that they're giving away just to to land the job or just to get the the contract. With this tool, you're you're making the balance a bit more even regarding from the creator side, from the freelancer side to the to the person who is um, contracting them. So yeah. I I applaud your tool. It's it's something that it's it's well needed, uh, and and I hope it it you can keep expanding to to further uh, fields. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so um, now let's talk about some practical cases. So um, tell us about something that was well, some case or some client that you handle uh, throughout your career, uh, either recently or. Or, or a few years ago, uh, where IP was the central issue with intellectual property, either copyright or, or other intellectual property was the central issue. And tell us about the story, how you handle it and what was the outcome. And most importantly, what you what you learned from the experience and what your client learned from the experience. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so uh, I think one of my favorite examples of an IP project I worked on was a we, we had a, a new client come in, and this was many years ago, and they were working with the federal government. And my client was a creator; they were creating websites and apps and all kinds of other creative elements. And they had a pretty basic agreement with the government. This was a this was one of the departments uh, within the administrative branch, and there were some disputes about payment and when the services were completed and the government was trying to basically cancel the project in a way. And so the government just didn't pay my client. It was a really weird situation. And so we were trying to figure out how do we resolve this? And we looked at the contract and of course looked at breach of contract claims and things like that. But we also noticed that there was not a copyright or intellectual property provision in the agreement at all. Right. And so, you know, under the Copyright Act, the creator of a work is generally going to be deemed the owner of the work unless it's, you know, a work made for hire or unless it's an employee created within their scope of employment or whatever. And when we noticed that, and we noticed that the government was still using all of the creative works that my client used, we went back to the government lawyer and said, hey, my client owns the copyright to everything in there. And you don't have any right to use any of that. And if you don't take the website down, we're going to include a claim for copyright infringement against you. And at first, the government lawyer said, well, no, we've already paid for that portion of the service. Therefore, we own it. And I said, no, payment is not enough to transfer copyright. There has to be something in writing in this scenario. And the government, the government lawyer didn't believe me. We ran it up to another higher level government lawyer. That lawyer still disagreed with me. And then they kept running it up the chain until they got to a pretty senior level lawyer who actually did the research and looked at the copyright law and realized they had made a big mistake by not including a copyright provision in the agreement. And so what happened was they ended up paying my client the full amount of money just so that they could capture the ownership of the copyright to the creative works. And it's just, it's one of those scenarios where a lot of lawyers don't truly understand copyright or trademark law. Um, mm -hmm. They're not always intuitive. And, you know, you think, well, I paid you, therefore I own it. But that's not how copyright law works. Um, and so it was just a great learning experience for my client uh, and my, I, I, I kind of myself, I guess I already knew this, but, you know, just because somebody breaches a contract, you know, there's always going to be other claims that you can look into. And copyright ownership is a huge one if you're working with creative clients. Even if you're a lawyer with a great expertise in some other field, it doesn't mean that you have to know about IP and especially about copyright. 
You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. Any other stories that you can share with us today? Yeah, I mean, on the trademark side, so I file a pretty good number of trademarks and I give advice to people on, on many more trademarks. But uh, I guess there's two trademark practical examples, one, one of which is, you know, I have clients that will file their own trademark or they might use like an online service. Uh, you know, there's various online places you can go and pay like 200 bucks and they'll file your trademark for you. And what, what, what's so sad is they, they do that and they come to me and then I help them form a business or draft a contract or whatever. And then I just look up their trademark just to kind of double check it for them. And I realize that they make mistakes. And, you know, maybe, you know, like one of the worst mistakes is they misclassify their goods or services in the trademark application because that's something that you generally cannot change after you've made the application. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. you can delete things, but you generally can't change the class that you apply under. And so like, it's, it's unfortunate when my client does that. And then I tell them, I'm like, Hey, uh, you applied two months ago. And I think you're about to get an office action. Um, you know, I think the USB two is going to deny your application because you mischaracterized the goods that you're selling. And so then we have to reapply take another three to four months, or now it's like five months. The USPTO is way behind right now. And it's just kind of unfortunate when they make those mistakes. So often I'll tell my clients, you know, if you, if you want to file a copyright, do that on your own. Um, I mean, I'm happy to help, but it's like 45 bucks on their website. It's pretty simple. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not very hard, but when you're filing for a trademark, it's unfortunate when they make a mistake. And I usually recommend that they work with a lawyer on the trademark side of things, just because it's so much more money and it takes so much longer to get it approved. If you ever get it approved. Can you tell us what is uh, trademark classification and how it's important for the trademark registration process? Oh, sure. When you file for a trademark, you have to designate which goods and services you're selling. So uh, trademark law is very specific to goods and services. So, you know, you can imagine Delta Airlines uses the name Delta, but do so does Delta faucets, you know? And the reason that that's okay is because people don't look at Delta Airlines and think it's the faucet company and vice versa. So when you file your trademark, you have to find which international class you fall under. And there's, I think there's 45 of them. Uh, and then from there, you have to describe your goods and services within that class. And you can't be too broad. You can't just, uh, I run a website. You know, it has to be more specific about what does your website actually do. And so there's some science behind that. And there, you can also research previously approved goods and service descriptions. And I try to use those whenever I can, because they've already been approved once. It means they'll probably be approved again. Um, but if you don't describe your product correctly, you can get an office action from the USPTO, uh, which says we're going to deny your mark uh, based on this. And you can always reply and you can even appeal if they deny again. But if you didn't do it very well the first time around, it might be too late to fix it and you might have to reapply. It can mark the, the fate of your registration application if, yes. you, miss, uh, if you make a mistake in that classification process, which is very important to understand what are you selling, what is your trademark representing in the market. So either product or service and what kind and exactly what it is. And something that helps as well a lot, it's um, the World Intellectual Property Organization. They have uh, a tool in which the treaty that class, that it's the, the reason why we have this um, classification, they tell you by product or by service. So you can search by product and service and then learn which classes will be more applicable. But it's always better to have um, an expertise or so someone with, with a trained eye that it can tell you exactly what uh, what classification should work better for you. And also it's important to do search for the trademark that you want to apply before oh, yeah. you file for the application. That's something that we have seen a lot. And I, I imagine, Chris, you have also seen a lot that people 
have this great name. They invested so much in, in the logo and everything else, but they don't do the search beforehand. And then they found out there was there was already a trademark similar or even identical that it's it's already registered. So they cannot ask uh, for the registration for the one that they were they were hoping to to obtain. So yeah. it's something that we see often. It's important mm -hmm. to know you can search that for free. Uh, yeah. Anybody go to the USPTO.gov website and run a trademark search and see what's out there. I mean, it's easy to search. It's a little bit harder to review and understand what the search results mean. But I mean, anybody can do a quick search and see what's out there. And it's free. Along the lines that you were saying in terms of related to a search, when my clients and I are trying to figure out what goods and services to apply under, one of the first things I always do is I think of their biggest competitor. So, you know, for example, if somebody came to me and said they wanted to start a rideshare business like Uber, well, I'm going to go look at Uber's trademarks and see what have they filed and, and what classes did they use? And I can look at their application history to see, you know, what the USPTO said in response to their classifications, because it's usually a good way to find what the best classes are is just to look at what other people already did. Um, so, Chris, any other cases that uh, pop to your mind? Well, another practical one. This is kind of the final one, I guess. Um, I like to tell my clients to apply as early as they can. I mean, I think that's kind of easy advice. Most lawyers would agree with, but there's always a balance between, you know, applying on day one versus waiting to make sure your business is successful. And plus, a lot of my clients don't have the money on day one to file a trademark through a lawyer. But the earlier you can file, the better. Uh, I had a case one time where my client and I, we filed their trademark on a Friday afternoon at like 3 p.m. or something like that. Turns out somebody else filed the exact same trademark for almost identical services at like 1 p.m. on that day. Oh, no. And that person, I don't know if they truly understood what they were doing or understood trademark law. And I think they knew that we were about to file our application. And I think that they just kind of snuck in and grabbed it before we did. Uh, now, we had pretty good common law rights because we'd been using the mark for a while. But the reality is, when I discovered that like a week or two later that this other person had jumped in front of us in line, that was unfortunate because yes, we have superior rights. Yes, we could have gone to court and all these various things. We could have um, opposed uh, that other person's registration and so on. But that's a pain. Right. Like having the legal right to do it doesn't, yeah, of course. doesn't doesn't mean you're in a good spot because that's just a pain to deal with. So what we did was we reached out to that person and said, hey, look, we have much greater rights than you do in this name. We think you're actually committing a fraud on the USPTO. We think that you know that you shouldn't be doing this. Um, if you will withdraw your application, you know, we'll work out a supplement with you. And that's what we did. So I, and if I recall, I think we may have even turned them into a licensee. I think, or at least made the offer to let them do that or something. Mm -hmm. um, so we ended up winning, you know, <laughs> but, but still what a pain, you know, and if we have, we, if we would have applied three hours earlier, none of it would have mattered. Ours would have been approved and theirs would have been denied. Wow. So, you know, apply as quickly as you can, I guess is the moral of that story. Well, in that case, you can also, if we went to court and everything, you can also cite a bad faith, right? Because yes, the, yes. the reason why they were requesting the registration, it was to prevent your client from registration. Yeah. I mean, they had some decent claim to the name. It wasn't very good, though. And I don't think they would have won if it ended mm -hmm. up in court, but they feasibly could have gotten around the bad faith argument. It was just a really weird circumstance. But yeah, I know we would have won if it got that far. But I also knew that my client was never going to spend that kind of money to go to court. <laughs> it just wasn't worth it. But um, but yeah, it, so it's it's funny how literally a few hours difference can make a huge difference in what your practical 
approach will be. Yes. Yeah, so now, you know, file quickly. <laughs> yeah. The moment you decide on the trademark and after you've done your search, just to make sure that no one has um, registered that before. So file the trademark, just do it right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With that, do you have like an idea or like um, a recipe for becoming successful as an entrepreneur? Or do you have an idea what elements should an entrepreneur have in order to become successful? You know, it depends on what kind of entrepreneur you want to be. I think of that word as a pretty broad, mm-hmm. uh, a, a pretty broad scope. You know, a, a freelancer, you know, oh, I'm a freelancer. Yeah. I'm a solo lawyer, right? Or if you're a freelance copywriter or a freelance logo designer or whatever, mm-hmm. that's one type of entrepreneur. And I definitely think those people are entrepreneurs. You know, I don't reserve the title yeah. entrepreneur for just people who are creating high growth potential startups. Um, but then, you know, high growth potential startup, that's a different kind of entrepreneur. So it might depend on how you define that. But in the terms of the smaller businesses, which is what I tend to work on, you know, you have to have the ability to get business. So you have to be good at sales or have somebody help you that's good at sales or whatever. If you can't close deals and win business, you can't succeed as an entrepreneur. It's just kind of the rule number one. If you don't have income, you can't have a business. Um, So to me, the way that I do it and the way that I found it to be the most successful is to focus on basically two things. One is having a really great network. So I'm constantly talking to other professionals like accountants and insurance brokers, as well as just client type people. I'm I'm very heavily networked in freelance organizations and small business organizations. Um, You know, because the more people I know, the more likely they are to refer business to me. And then the second thing is to do the best work possible for your clients, because you can turn your client base into a sales force. And I I ran the numbers actually just about three or four weeks ago. And I was tweeting about this. Um, 77% of my new clients come from referrals. You know, I mean, that's the overwhelming majority of my, my new client base. So it's referrals from existing clients. It's referrals from colleagues, referrals from other lawyers or whatever. So, you know, do great work and have a really good network is probably the best way to ensure that you can have a great uh, entrepreneurship career uh, as a small business or as a freelancer. And your work is your best presentation card. There's no reason to do bad work. <laughs> Just, <you know. laughs> You know, it's not okay. So I read this somewhere. I think it may have been Paul Jarvis that was writing about this. Um, It's not enough just to do what you say you're going to do. I mean, that's the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. If you say I'm going to deliver a contract by Friday, then you better deliver it by Friday. But whenever possible, go above and beyond. It doesn't mean that you have to double your work input. It just, you know, so when I draft a contract on a fixed fee, I usually say, here's the fixed fee. It includes the first draft and one round of revisions. So if my client sends me an email and they're like, hey, I want you to make these three changes. Okay, great. If they email me two weeks later and they're like, hey, you know what? I thought of one other thing. What do you think? And I, and if I can add it in five minutes, I'm not going to invoice them. I'm just going to add it for them. And then they like me even that much more, you know, I'm producing mm-hmm. value for them. You know, if they ask me to edit the entire agreement for some reason, I'd probably bill extra, but go above and beyond and your client base will turn into a sales force. They will tell all of their friends to hire you. Great advice. It's in everyone's reach to do it because the reason why you're a freelancer, the reason why you are a small entrepreneur or the reason why you do this business is because some way, somehow you love what you do. And in different levels, of course, people have different levels of passion and, and career development, but it's something that if you love what you do. You have to do it with love, with care, and and it would it would come back to you. That care that you put in the work, that um, passion that you put in your work, it will come back to you in the form of more clients, more work, and and greater recognition amongst your peers. So it's something that it, we all should strive to obtain to be better every day and with every work. I I agree entirely, one hundred percent. So, um, Chris, please tell us your contact information so where we can find Pixel 
and yeah. how we can contact you. Yep. Uh, I mentioned contract canvas earlier and, and that's just at contractcanvas.com. My email address there is chris at contractcanvas.com. Just spelt the normal way, C-H-R-A-S. Uh, my law firm is Pixel Law. Uh, that's at pixellaw.com. You can find all of my information there. You can also email me uh, there. My email address there is just chris at pixellaw.com. And then I'm also on most social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, and so on, uh, under the name The Pixel Lawyer. And of course, in Clubhouse as well. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I'm recently on Clubhouse. That That's a little bit new to me, but I'm on, I'm on mm-hmm. Clubhouse as The Pixel Lawyer as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great tool. I'm, I'm learning a lot uh, just by listening to other people talk. It's, it's quite a great tool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for your time. Thank you for uh, sharing with us your experiences and your knowledge. And I wish you all the best in your new uh, project coming up and everything else that you will be com- doing the next in the future. Very good. And thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Goodbye from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.